Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be with you today. Uh, we are moving into a new, exciting era of biblical history. As you may know, we have been discussing the exile and some of the events that happened during the exile, specifically uh, revolving around four young men from Jerusalem, Daniel, and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their stories of really just how they were faithful time and time again in a culture that was hostile to the ways of God, uh, based on some ways that they were faithful to God's law in their diet, faithful to only worshiping God, only praying to God, even though there were consequences in those circumstances uh, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were put into a furnace, but God protected them. Daniel, of course, again, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, was thrown into a den of lions, but God protected them, protected him. And in both of those stories, there wasn't this expectation if, oh, I do the right thing, then I get I get out of the consequences of my actions, especially in the one with Fiery Furnace, the guys say, even, even if God doesn't save us, we're not going to disobey God. So they gave us a great example of what it looked like to be faithful to God in a culture that is hostile to the ways of God. But now this new era of biblical history that we are moving into is the return from exile. So we are going to, for the next several weeks, uh, be uh, we'll revisit some of God's promises through the prophets. So we'll talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about the rebuilding of the temple when the people return to the land, the rebuilding of the wall, the reading of the law, and some guys named Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, and Ezra. So we're going to be talking about that for the next several weeks, what happens, what transpires for the people to be returned from exile, because we know already that God had promised the people that they were going to return from exile. He told them for 70 years they'd be in exile, then they would return. So we are going to see how that happens. Uh, the passage today is going to be from the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1. Uh, and this is really the first proclamation about the return. Ezra is not actually going to show up in the story. Uh, not for some time yet, actually, into the book of Ezra that bears his name. But we will have the opportunity to kind of set the stage for what the return from the exile is going to look like, kind of lay a foundation for what to expect over the next several weeks. It's a pretty straightforward passage today. Um, but we're so we're going to use this as kind of a starting point and framework for us to understand the next several weeks and what goes on for the rest of the chronology of this period. So if you like dates and background information and con cultural context, then today is going to be for you. If those are not your things, well, this isn't going to be your favorite Bible breakdown of all time. But my hope is that with this framework in mind, that when we get to the really fun stories with long narratives and all these things happening, and we have less background context and things like that, that you will at least understand generally what's going on and so it's not too confusing so that's my goal for today i hope that you will enjoy it i like talking about background context but also i went and got a degree in reading the bible so i've already pretty much admitted that i'm strange so uh no no nothing new there but i hope that you will too enjoy this so we are going to go ahead and start off by reading ezra 1 verses 1 through 4 and then we'll talk about some of that framework that i mentioned Starting in verse one, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. All right, so that's what the initial proclamation is, but we're going to go ahead and before we get jump in and understand those verses specifically, just want to go ahead and again, start to lay that groundwork, give some context for the whole of the return. So this information is a combo of some notes that are in the ESV and also a commentary on the books Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther by a guy named Dr. Mervyn Brenneman. Thank you, Dr. Brenneman. So to start, let's go back to the dates of the exile. Okay, so you've heard me probably say 586 a thousand times. That is right. But 586 is the one we most commonly use because it was the final of the exiles. Okay, but there were other major periods of exile too. The, the first one was in 608. BC, which of course, when we're talking BC, we they count backwards. So 608 comes before 586. So that was the first wave of exiles. Then there's also one in 598 BC. And then again, finally, it happens in 586. And again, that's the one that's most common because it was the last one. But there was an exile like almost 20 years before that. So in Jeremiah 25 and 29, as I alluded to earlier, we're told the exile will last 70 years. So these dates help us understand a little bit of, okay, what what is the 70-year period? If we've got like three different potential starting points, then what is the 70 years? So this edict from Cyrus comes in about, and I say about, or ish, like 538-ish is what this date is, 538. Anytime we're trying to figure out a date from 25, 2600 years ago, I think we need to have a humility about us and recognize you know, it happened a really long time ago and we've kind of changed calendars since then and we're never going to know just exact, exact, right? But we can get a pretty good, pretty good picture from several different sources. So that's why I'll say about or ish a lot because again, we don't want to say it definitely happened in this year. But this edict from Cyrus is dated at about 538 BC. And this is shortly after Persia conquered Babylon. So they're still in an area that is going to come to be called Babylonia, but Babylon, the nation state, is not no longer in control. They have been taken over by Persia shortly before, not that long, like they think maybe a year or two uh, before this edict. So if you did the math from one of the dates I said, and 538-608-ish to 538-ish, about 70 years after the initial people were exiled. I think this is probably the most likely dating that we were supposed to understand for that 70 years, that from 608 to 538. Now, there is an additional point of interest here. The temple, the new temple that they're going to rebuild, 
was completed in roughly 515 BC, give or take. There's like a span of maybe five years there that it could have been completed, but that's about 70 years from the final destruction of Jerusalem in 586. So there's about 70 years there too. Again, I think the 608 to 538 is probably the 70 that we're looking at most likely, but additionally, perhaps, perhaps instead of, there's also that 70-year period between 515-ish and 586-ish, right? So about 70 years in those places, just like was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. So shortly after this edict, then in 538-ish, will be the first wave of returns. And that's important because there are going to be many waves of returns. This first one is going to be led by a guy whose name I mentioned earlier, Zerubbabel. And we're going to talk about him in a couple weeks. And just to be clear too, contrary to a popular understanding of the people Ezra and Nehemiah, they actually don't come until 80 to 100 years later. So traditionally, the date of Ezra's return to Jerusalem, to Judah, is 458 BC. That's about 80 years after the edict. And Nehemiah is typically dated at 445 BC. So these guys actually came quite a bit later, though we normally, and rightfully so, because that's the nature of their uh, place in biblical history. We associate them strongly with the return from exile, but they were far from the first people. So just wanted to make sure that we kind of have that in mind. That's one reason why Ezra doesn't show up in chapter one, because this was happening before he was born. So likely what happened with Nehemiah and Ezra is their ancestors were among those who remained in Babylonia for a time. And they went with a later wave because there were people. It's not everybody that was from Jerusalem or Judah didn't return in 538. There were some that went and there were some that stayed. Some that probably their families never returned because, you know, they decided that this was their new home. So Ezra and Nehemiah, at least their ancestors, they decided, it seems like, not to go not to go back until they came in 458 and 445. So we will talk a lot about them because they are very important in the return and the uh, just the kind of reestablishing God's people. But just wanted to make it clear that a lot of the things that are going to happen happen before they're even born. So there you go. So now back to Ezra chapter one, Ezra proper. Uh, the beginning of Ezra, again, not directly about Ezra, but it is about the beginning of the return from exile, which we see here. The author here is making it clear that this act of Cyrus, this edict, which according to Dr. Brenneman was also extended to other captured people groups. So, Worth noting that uh, other people groups were also allowed to return to their land. Uh, but the author is recognizing this is actually an act of God. This is not just a really kind king of Persia, though he may have been perfectly pleasant, that this is at its base an act of God and that God is using Cyrus to be a instrument of justice, an instrument of fulfilling God's prophecy. And this is truly just an act of God. Cyrus just happens to be the messenger. Cyrus recognizes, too, this authority he has comes from God. He says, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth in verse 2. So he recognizes where his authority is coming from. He offers that any who want to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild God's temple are welcome to do so. He also gives them 
the freedom to ask for goods to bring back with them to live. Right? So this kind of reminds us as reminiscent of when God called the people out of Egypt in the Exodus, and they were to ask the people of Egypt for their stuff. And they got valuables, they got weapons, things like that. And the Egyptians were glad to see them go because at that point they'd been through several plagues and uh, they were they were not feeling so great about uh, their Israelite neighbors. So they gave them stuff. So let's see how both the people, uh, how the people of Judah and how the people that are residing in Babylonia respond to this invite. Verse five, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares beside all that was freely offered. So God stirred many of the tribal and religious leaders to go and rebuild the temple, to reestablish the people in the land that God had promised in Judah, specifically in Jerusalem. And everyone around them was giving them, well, they were giving them costly goods. All who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, goods, beasts, costly wares is what it says. In addition to things that were probably of less value, but important. I think that's that's kind of how I take that all that was freely offered. You know, like here, take this bag. You know, it's like not very valuable, but you got to have a bag, right? But I think also important, it's not just like the the Jewish people who were living there that weren't going. It seems like this was really anyone that was making their home in this area. People from other nations, perhaps from Babylon, perhaps from Persia, perhaps from other conquered nations were also giving of their valuables to the people as they return. So we see that God provided for his people, even in a foreign land, even using foreign peoples who likely did not even worship God, but God was providing for his people. And that's not all they go back with picking it back up in verse seven. Cyrus, the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 bases of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So Cyrus brings returns the articles that have been taken from the temple all those years ago a huge act of obedience to god of goodwill toward the people 5400 vessels in total that is quite a lot it may not have been all that was originally taken remember these were vessels that were used in the worship of god in the temple so these weren't just valuable plates and cups and things like that these were part of god's uh, outlined worship in the temple. So it's not just that they got things that were valuable, but things that had a spiritual significance too in the worship of God as they returned to the temple. So the people go back laden with treasures in a good way with the intention of rebuilding the temple. And this is just, this is just the appetizer. This is, we're just getting started 
with what the people are doing and what God is going to do through the people. But as we look at this passage and we think about, okay, what are some some ways for us to apply this truth in Scripture to our lives today? The first, and this is one that has come up regularly, and now we get to really see it come up to fruition in this particular era of the people of Israel, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He had told the people that they were going to return, that they were going to have 70 years and they would return, and he kept his promise. So God up to this point always keeps his promises, keeps his promise here, continues to keep his promises to us. And the reason that I think it's so important that we continually remind ourselves of the truth that God keeps his promises is because we can be very much tempted to believe God's not going to keep his promises. You have to think that in the period of 70 years where most of the exiles, the original exiles would probably have passed away and it would be a new generation, a new couple of generations that would be living in Babylonia. You can imagine that they would become a little bit weary of waiting for God or, you know, hoping that he would take care of them and maybe starting to lose hope. I mean, it probably wouldn't have been a lot of people that would have left in the exile and then been there for the time of the return. They would have had to be at least in their mid-70s, you'd think, to remember the exile and then also be alive for the return. So. God proves to his people yet again that he keeps his promises. We have trouble believing that God's going to keep his promises too, whether it's our own uh, shame and guilt that sometimes keep us from believing God's going to keep his promises, whether it's uh, the people around us, maybe they ridicule the things we believe God says he will do or that he has done. Uh, like exa- for example, the return of Jesus uh, back in the time of Peter, we talked about. We've talked about in First and Second Peter how people were uh, kind of taunting the people that they would believe that Jesus would return, right? But it's important for us to remember that all throughout Scripture, from the very beginning through the very end, that God keeps His promises. So if He's promised it, it may not happen. We we don't always get a seventy year timeline like the exiles got, right? But we do always see that God keeps his promises and that God's timing is perfect. There's no cause for us to question God's timing. And the second thing that I think is important as we seek to apply this is that God uses all types of people to accomplish his will and to provide. You may have heard the phrase, all truth is God's truth. Uh, I think we can even expand that to an extent to all good is God's good. There's no good that is independent of God. No, nothing that is truly good that isn't doesn't originate in the character of God. Because if we are acting in good as believers, then that is God's work in our life. And if a person who maybe doesn't believe in Jesus is acting good, maybe like Cyrus, God is using that person or recognizing too that we're all created in the image of God. There is a part of us that is in his image. So we desire to do good. So God uses all types of people to accomplish his will and to provide. And sometimes I think when we see something maybe happening in our culture, uh, our temptation can be to immediately dismiss something that didn't start at, our, at a church or with a vocally Christian person or you know some nonprofit with a statement of doctrine that we really agree with. But recognizing too that there have been times in history and there will continue to be when somebody who maybe isn't even a believer 
does something that is good, that God is using them to do good, and that we don't have to ignore something good being done just because it wasn't started by a person who is a, you know, an, an evangelical who believes in Jesus vocally, right? There have been many times in history where good causes have been started by people that maybe don't believe the same things we do. Now, there's also a lot of times where people will say something is good, and it most certainly is not. So we have to be judges of that. We have to discern, especially using scripture, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, community, prayer. All these things are ways that we discern what is good. But we also shouldn't just dismiss something just because it maybe it originated with a person who wasn't a believer, right? Or a, an organization that wasn't doesn't have a statement of faith that we would agree with, right? We can judge for ourselves. Is this the world being the world or is this God using people, even those who don't know him, to do good in the world? I think that's something we have to keep our hearts open to, uh, and which is not keeping our hearts open to the world. It's keeping our hearts open to God and how he's working. You know, it doesn't really matter if the person who discovers gravity is a believer or not a believer. If it's true, it's true, right? And it doesn't really matter if the person who does some, is doing something good in the world, if they are doing a true good, which, you know, that's always also a difficult thing. I don't know if any Friends fans or listeners, but Joey has a whole episode where he tries to convince Phoebe there's no such thing as a truly good deed. And so there's probably some truth to that. But even if, if somebody's doing something good, and even if they don't believe the same as us, if we're serving alongside someone at a homeless shelter or a food pantry, that maybe they don't hold the same beliefs we do, we can still recognize, no, what we're doing is good and it's right and it's according to what God would have us do in scripture. So I think we just, I just want us to have a, an open heart to seeing God's good, even in uncommon places, even in places we wouldn't expect it to be. We, of course, as the church want to be people, leaders in the culture of doing good, doing good for others, doing good for God's creation. But sometimes God is using people that are not in the church to do good. We just need to have an eye open for that. And we also need to have an eye open for things that would be shown to be good. But when we run it through the grid of scripture, the Holy Spirit's work, community, prayer, that we recognize people may call this good, but according to God's standard, this is not good. It's a tension that we have to live with. It's not always going to be black and white. It can be very difficult to discern sometimes. But I just don't want us to be dismissive of a good just because maybe, oh, well, I, I wish it was part of an organization that had a clear doctrinal statement I could agree with or a person who I knew for certain was a believer in Jesus Christ. We don't always get that luxury. But what we do get the luxury of doing is serving a God who is working all throughout our world, all throughout our lives in so many different ways. The people of uh, Judah, they were punished by a group of people. It was God's divine judgment through the country Babylon that led to the exile. That was God's divine punishment, even though it was being enacted by a pagan nation. And here with Cyrus, even though Cyrus seems to have a pretty nice, uh, nice theology, right? He has some really great beliefs about the God of Israel. Even so, the nation as a whole is a, is a pagan nation. He's using the nation of Persia to liberate the people, to Again, his divine will is coming through this pagan nation. So just something for us to keep in mind, to keep an eye out for God's good, for God's truth in the world. Because if anything is truly good, it is for the good of others, it is for our good. And when we act on things that are for the good of others and for ourselves, 
we give glory to God because he is the one who is truly good. Thank you.